Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series with James Jordan on Christian worldview, and here he's going to further elaborate his thoughts on the church and her power. We really hope that you enjoy this time of teaching, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here's James Jordan discussing biblical worldview. We are at the beginning of a general series on Christian worldview, and we're starting off with a discussion of the church and worship as these things center on the throne of God, which is the center of the kingdom of God in creation, where God chooses to make himself manifest and to place his name in a particular way would have to be naturally the center of life. And we've been talking about church power. Uh, We talked about uh, the church and the different senses of the word church. We talked about uh, who we can regard as members of the church and who we are not allowed to and the difference between our personal opinions and an ecclesiological rule that those who are baptized, who are submitted to government, and who profess faith in Christ can be are to be counted as and treated as Christians. And we were talking about church power. And I'd like to make this a little bit more formal, uh, this in the way of summary, to formalize what I was saying the last two weeks and talk about the two kinds of church power. There are two kinds of church power, what we call the power of order and the power of jurisdiction. The power of order and the power of jurisdiction. The power of order is a power possessed by every member of the church. General officers, which we all are, and special officers, the elders. And the power of order consists of the power or right or privilege to do such things as communicate the gospel, visit the sick, visit the godly in prison, comfort the afflicted, encourage the saints, reprove the erring, and the like. These are activities which all Christians are to engage in and which special officers do as well in a special kind of way. Now, we'd have to say that there's a special weight attached to the performance of these duties when they are done by special officers. When a special officer communicates the gospel or teaches the Bible, it has to be hearkened to with special weight. It's different uh, from a situation in which uh, a mother may teach something to her child or a man may, in conversation with his friend, talk about the Bible and what it may or may not say. When a special officer communicates the word of God, there is special weight. It doesn't mean that he communicates it inerrantly or infallibly, but it does mean that it's to be hearkened to with a special weight. And similarly, if one member of the church comes to another and says, I don't think you spank your kids enough, or I think you spank your kids too much, or I think that it's a sin not to breastfeed, or I think that it's a sin to breastfeed, or I think that it's a sin to drive a new car, or I think that it's a sin to drive an old beat-up car like that, or etc., you can weigh it and take it with uh, several grains of salt. But if a special officer comes and reproves you or gets on to you about something, that has to be treated with special weight. It doesn't mean that you don't have the right to reject advice. You have the right to make mistakes. Uh, As prophets, priests, and kings, prophetesses, priestesses, and queens under Christ, 
we have the right to take bad advice, reject good advice, and make mistakes. We don't have the right to transgress the explicit law of God, but we have the right to make mistakes. But the wise man attends with special hearing to anything that comes from a special officer. And we would also have to say in the area of the power of order in communicating the gospel, which is a general power, uh, that when it's done in part of a worship service under the special oversight of elders, then there's special weight attached to it. Even if they appoint somebody who's not an elder to teach in the worship service, nevertheless, there's special weight attached to that because it is uh, on a special occasion and under this direct oversight of the office bearers. That's the power of order, this general kind of shepherding that we all do with one another and that the elders do in a particular kind of way. Then, distinct from that, and this is what we've been talking about, there is the power of jurisdiction, the power of jurisdiction. This is a power which only special officers exercise. General officers do not exercise power of jurisdiction in the church. Now, you do in the family. Mothers and fathers have jurisdiction in the family. And if some of you were civil magistrates, and I guess we have to put that in the subjunctive mood because I don't think any of us are, when you sit on a jury, you are temporarily enlisted as a civil magistrate. On such occasions, you have power of jurisdiction. But ordinarily, uh, in this church, only three men have power of jurisdiction, and they cannot exercise it individually. They have to exercise it collectively. It is what's known as a joint power, not a distributed power. Therefore, only the elders acting as a group can exercise the power of jurisdiction. Now, what kinds of things are involved in the power of jurisdiction? They are the following. The determination of membership by baptism and excommunication. Now, we've talked about that. We won't talk about that anymore, probably. Maintenance of a church role. The special officers make those determinations. You don't. You can't come here, as we've said before, and say, well, I'm a Christian in my heart, and so uh, that's it. I get to come to the Lord's table. No, you have to be under government somewhere for the church to regard you as a church member. Uh, second of all, in our church and in other churches, the power of jurisdiction means the determination of voting membership. Third, the power of jurisdiction deals with the adjudication of matters brought before the church court. So some matters are brought before the church court. Uh, the adjudication of those matters is part of the power of jurisdiction. Only special officers can do that or oversee its being done anyway. Uh, fourthly, the power of jurisdiction enables uh, special officers to appoint occasions in the church, the appointment of occasions. There are three kinds of occasions that are appointed by the special officers. The liturgical occasions are, are occasions of worship. Only special officers can appoint those. They decide when the church will meet, at 11 o'clock and not at 9. Now, it's no violation of your Christian liberty that the special officers make these determinations. Uh, it is simply their task. Everything must be done decently and in order, and they appoint liturgical occasions, occasions for worship. Secondly, they appoint koinoneal occasions. What are koinoneal occasions? Well, that's your $64,000 uh, theological term, which means fellowship. They appoint the times for special fellowship. That is, cover dish suppers, parties, festivals, and the like. Okay? What the generally in the New Testament talks about when it talks about love feasts. 
And third, they appoint diaconal occasions. Those would be times of like work days and times um, if we had times of special service, uh, work projects or anything like that. They appoint such occasions and order them. And finally, the power of jurisdiction means that the special officers appoint liturgical form. Every church worship service is conducted according to a form. It's either consciously worked out or unconscious. It's either bad or good. It's either stupid or edifying. It's either biblical or based on what people like and feel comfortable with. But every church has a liturgical form. It may have, may not have uh, the manifestation of Christ in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. It may have people walking the aisle as the sacrament every week. And that is a sacrament, as I'm sure you recognize. Uh, the uh, walking the aisle is a sacramental act. It is a false sacrament, and that's why we don't do it. Uh, it's understandable how it would arise, uh, because in churches where people do nothing, uh, the nature of man is such that people want to do something. And since they don't do this in remembrance of me every week, then they start to do something else. And we seek to correct that by doing what Christ actually commanded to be done, that is the Lord's Supper, and thus these other uh, rituals aren't necessary. But somebody oversees and decides on the appointment of liturgical form, and that has to be the special officers. Okay, we have talked... In talking about the power of jurisdiction, we've already talked about the power of determining membership in the church, and I don't want to say any more about that. I'd like to talk briefly about the power of adjudication and just make a couple of points on this. We haven't had, uh, to my knowledge, yet a case where one Christian in the church has brought a charge against another. Uh, we have had cases where the elders have had to bring charges against people, for uh, departing from the church, that is, for breaking the covenant. But I don't recall an occasion where one person has brought a charge against another. But the New Testament does say that we are to bring matters to the church before we bring it to the state, and it's the power of the church to adjudicate such offenses. We see this in 1 Corinthians 6. You might turn there. 1 Corinthians 6. Starting in verse 1, does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? You'll notice it doesn't say that it's wrong to go before the state. It says it's wrong to go before the unrighteous. Now, in Paul's day, the courts of the civil magistrate were unrighteous because they were pagan. And that, I think, is generally true in our day as well. Uh, in a Christian civilization, the courts of the civil magistrate would be Christian courts, uh, say in Puritan times in New England. Uh, the courts of the civil magistrate would have been Christian courts. Only Christian judges could sit on those courts. And so taking your brother before the court of the civil magistrate would have been uh, before a Christian court. But in pagan times, such as ours, then the only Christian court is a church court, and a church court alone can have uh, this adjudicating responsibility. And so the general rule is that we do not go to the law before the unrighteous. We don't have pagans judge us. We go before the saints. In verse 2 he says, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest of law courts? 
Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more matters of this life? If then you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? Okay? We should have law courts, he says, dealing with matters of this life, but we must not appoint pagans as judges. Verse 5, I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between the brethren? But brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. Okay? Actually, then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits one with another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? Okay? So, that's enough to indicate that the church must form a law court to adjudicate matters, especially when there is no Christian civil government. Uh, then the church courts would adjudicate not only church matters, but have to act as some type of a shadow of the civil courts as well, um, because there are no proper Christian civil courts to go before. Now the Bible lays down certain restrictions on bringing matters before the church court, and I think it's good to have these in mind. This makes a good occasion to review. In the first place, you have to have two witnesses to judge a person guilty. Man cannot be convicted on the testimony of one witness. And second of all, there's a penalty attached to bringing an irresponsible charge. What is there, after all, to prevent somebody doesn't like me, decides to get me in trouble, and goes to the elders and makes a charge against me? Uh, what's there to protect the court from being tied down with all kinds of litigation? from litigious persons who like to tie the court down. Well, there are certain rules. If you'll turn to Deuteronomy 19, we'll see the main rule that we always have to keep in mind when we bring matters before the church court. Deuteronomy 19, starting in verse 15. A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. That is, to have a judgment, you must have two or three witnesses. If a malicious witness rises up against a man to accuse him of wrongdoing, then both the men who have the dispute shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who shall be in office in those days. And the judges shall investigate thoroughly, and if the witness is a false witness and he has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him just as he had intended to do to his brother. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you, and the rest will hear and be afraid, and will never again do such an evil thing among you. Thus you shall not show pity, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Well, it says life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Okay? Let's say that a couple of you get together and decide to bring a charge against me that I stole 500 bucks, okay, and it's proved that I'm innocent, all right? If I had been guilty, I would have had to pay $1,000, double restitution. Since I'm proved innocent and your charge has been proven false, you have to pay $1,000 because that's what you hope to get out of me. So that is a real restraint on bringing charges. You need to have... Uh, have it pretty clear in your mind, you have to have your evidence pretty well lined up before you go into court. Because if it's proved that you are malicious, then you have to suffer exactly the penalty that you would hope the other man would suffer. And that can be rather costly. See, that's a real restraint on continual litigation before a church court. Now, when we talk about the church court, there is a special rule for bringing charges against elders. 
let me remind you of that. In 1 Timothy 5.19, do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. That is, you may not convict a man, anybody, on the, except on the basis of two or three witnesses, but the court is not even to hear a charge unless it is brought by two or three witnesses against an elder. Now, why give all this special protection for an elder? Well, it's because there are a lot of people in the world who resent those in power and seek to cause trouble. And Satan has a way of stirring people up. Let me just read to you what John Calvin says. Why does the apostle protect elders alone by this privilege, as if it were peculiar to them that their innocence shall be defended against false accusations? I reply, this is a necessary remedy against the malice of men, for none are more liable to slanders and calumnies than godly teachers. Not only does it arise from the difficulty of their office that sometimes they either sink under it or stagger or halt or blunder, in consequence of which wicked men seize many occasions for finding fault with them, but there is this additional vexation that although they perform their duty correctly so as not to commit any error whatsoever, they never escape a thousand censures. And this is the craftiness of Satan to draw away the hearts of men from ministers, that instruction may gradually fall into contempt. Notice how Calvin wisely says gradually. All of these things, gossip and the like, gradually tear the church down until finally there's no respect left. Thus, not only is wrong done to innocent persons in having their reputation unjustly wounded, which is exceedingly base in regard to those who hold so honorable a rank, but also the authority of the sacred doctrine of God is diminished. And this is what Satan, as I have said, chiefly labors to accomplish. For not only is the saying of Plato true in this instance, this Calvin for you here, a little Plato on the side, that the multitude are malicious and envy those who are above them, says Plato, but the more earnestly any pastor strives to advance the kingdom of Christ, so much the more is he loaded with envy, and so much the fiercer are the assaults made on him. Not only so, but as soon as any charge against the ministers of the word has gone abroad, gossip, it is believed as fully as if they were already convicted. This is not merely owing to the higher degree of moral excellence which is demanded from them, but because almost all are tempted by Satan to excessive credulity, so that without making any inquiry, they eagerly condemn their pastors whose good name they ought rather to have defended. We need not wonder, therefore, if they whose duty it is to reprove the faults of all, to oppose the wicked desires of all, or to restrain by their severity every person whom they see going astray, have many enemies. Okay? Elders are likely to get enemies. Satan stirs up people with rumors. Have you heard the latest? I guess that came to my ears twice this past week. Have you heard the latest? Rumor-mongering. And then there are always people who simply resent authority. They always try to tear down authority. And then there's the fact that elders have a way of, uh, when there's trouble, they find out about our sins. They find out something that we've done and have to deal with us. Some people resent that. There are all kinds of reasons why elders are more subject to attack than the rest of us. They're more visible, and so there's a special protection. A charge is not even to be received against them unless it's pretty well substantiated. Okay, that's uh, that on adjudication. We haven't had formal hearings here except for people who have fled the church and uh, 
hopefully we'll never have to have adjudications in the church. But adjudication is one of the powers of the power of jurisdiction of special officers. And it's important that we have in mind uh, some aspects of the due process involved. Yeah. Uh, so far, what you said applies pretty much to the whole church. How does the appellate system apply to our country? Okay. If a man is unhappy with a decision, it can be appealed to higher court. And uh, once it gets to the highest court, there's no longer any appeal and you have to submit. Uh, we in the ARC have a system whereby an appeal would mean the bringing in of two elders from outside churches. Because our denomination is so small, we have sort of an informal idea that uh, we would call upon elders from other Reformed churches maybe to come in, have both parties sign a contract saying they will submit to the decision of these men as a court of appeal, and uh, thus constitute them an ad hoc Christian court. See, 1 Corinthians 6 is a little bit vague, and it's nice that it is. It says, is there not some wise man that can judge? It doesn't say, and, and Paul could easily have said, have the elders or bishops judge, but he doesn't. He says, is there not some wise man? So it's completely permissible to have an ad hoc type court where you call upon certain people to sit on it. Uh, if there was a problem that arose in some area of business, say, and we had a man who was an expert in that area, he might be added to the court. I think that probably there would have to be, he'd have to be acceptable to both parties. Uh, maybe there would be a contract signed so that everything is completely above board. But I think there's a certain vagueness there. And in courts of appeal, we could call upon uh, elders in surrounding Reformed churches if some of the men in the ARC couldn't come uh, to form a court of appeal. But then according to Deuteronomy 17, once it's gone up to the highest court, you must submit or face a death penalty if you refuse to abide by the decision of the highest court in any case. So that would mean an excommunication from the church if a man wouldn't abide by the final decision of a court. Justice is never perfect in this life. There is a final tribunal where everything will be set right. But we, we can strive to get good justice, but we can never hold out for perfect justice in history. Does that answer your question? Ray? I wanted to point out, too, that you understand the object of Christian justice in the church. There is a great deal of latitude. Sometimes <coughs> situations aren't dealt with like one might think they should be, but God and his providence through that object system works them out that way. It also goes for someone who you might think is guilty of something. In a court of the church, they might be found innocent. And one has to accept the sovereignty of God and the way he providentially deals with these objective systems. Right. Uh, it is the fairest system known to man. The other system becomes scary. Right. You have the, kind of the best of possible worlds. But there has to be some form of adjudication. And the Bible gives it to us here. All right, I'd like to move on to the power to appoint meetings. The power to appoint meetings, or the appointment of occasions. This is the third general area of the power of jurisdiction, the first being the determination of membership, including voting membership, second, the adjudication of matters brought before the court, the third, the appointment of occasions, liturgical, koinonial, and diaconal, and then fourth, the <clears throat> appointment of liturgical form. Let's talk about the power to appoint meetings. We won't get done with this today. To lead in, I would like to talk about a couple of things. Um, 
Just briefly, I think the power to appoint fellowship occasions has never really been controversial in any church. Uh, the elders decide we're going to have a cover dish supper or a party, um, unless it's, say, Christmas Eve, in which case the Puritan faction in the church may object. Uh, there is not a whole lot of problem with appointing festivals. Uh, sometimes there's a problem with appointing fast days. Uh, and we have not really ever addressed the question of appointing fast days, but if you'll look in the Westminster Confession and commentaries on it, you'll see that the church may appoint festival days and fast days. Perhaps in our tradition, fasting is a little bit more popular than festivity, but I think that in our church, festivity is more popular than fasting. So we won't need to say a whole lot about the appointment of koinonial occasions, occasions of fellowship or fasting. Uh, appointing diaconal occasions can be controversial. Uh, work days, uh, is this uh, conscripting people or drafting them? Uh, is it tyrannical? Well, I don't think so. It would be if you were going to excommunicate people who didn't show up. But there's a simple principle here that you have in the Old Testament, and that is of raising the militia when something needs to be done. In Numbers chapter 10, verse 3, uh, talking about the silver trumpets, it says, When both are blown, all the congregation shall gather themselves to you at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Okay, if something's going on, if the camp is under attack or something, the trumpets are blown, and, and the men are supposed to show up. Uh, you will see an example of this in Judges chapter 5. I think it's, it's telling about how discipline was exercised here. This was a time of warfare, in Judges 5, we have the song of Deborah. And starting in verse 12, uh, excuse me, in verse 14, we have a list of those who showed up to fight the battle, and we also have a list of those who couldn't be bothered. From Ephraim, those whose root is in Amalek, men came. Following them, Benjamin with your peoples. From Machir, commanders came down, and from Zebulun, those who wield the staff of office. And my princes of Issachar were with Deborah. As Issachar so Barak into the valley, they rushed at his heels. Then we get a list of them and the trumpet was blown. Among the divisions of Reuben, there were great resolves of heart. They were going to come. Why then did you sit among the sheepfolds to hear the piping for the flock? Among the divisions of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Gilead remained across the Jordan. And why did Dan stay in ships? Asher remained by the seashore and stayed by its landings. Then uh, again, people who did come, Zebulun was a people who despised their lives even to death, and Naphtali also on the high places of the field. Now, what's significant about all this is there's not just a list here of people who came and people who didn't come, but this was sung at all the watering places. At the sound of those who divide flocks among the watering places, there they shall recount the righteous deeds of the Lord. In other words, year after year, those who had not <clears throat> seen fit to come and fight the wars of the Lord were subject to ridicule publicly. They weren't excommunicated, there wasn't any trial, but they were identified as those who couldn't be bothered. Well, I would say that our work days, whether it's work days or mowing the grass or any other kinds of things that uh, the elders occasionally ask in diaconal work, the appearance of the church before the world is part of our witness, and our witness is our warfare. And so when we have work days, people should come. And they shouldn't view it as conscription or as some problematic matter. Uh, in the Old Testament, there were legitimate reasons why a man wouldn't go to war. He just married a wife. He's sick. If he says that he's afraid to fight, he didn't have to come. So 
if people don't want to come to work days, that's okay. But uh, those who volunteer are those who get noticed as those who volunteered, and that's credit. All right? Enough on diaconal, uh, the power to accept diaconal occasions. They're a little bit different. Perhaps in another age or time, we would be tougher about this. But in America, with everybody, uh, his own boss, it's a little bit hard, and we just leave it at that. We set these occasions up and hope that men will show. Let's turn to liturgic. Uh, lit- Before we talk about the appointment of liturgical occasions, I would like to lead into that by talking about informal power structures in the church. We've talked about the formal power structure, that is, the elders... And let's talk just briefly about informal power structures and get that out of the way before we talk about worship, because when we start talking about appointing liturgical occasions, then we're going to lead into talking about the worship service and go over the new worship liturgy that we have and the like. We don't want to have to come back to this. So let me put in a parenthesis here about informal power structures in the church. Every community has an informal as well as a formal power structure. There's nothing wrong with that. It's in the nature of things. Some people come out and do a whole lot, and they kind of get recognized as leaders. In fact, they're the ones that the Bible says should be made leaders. You recognize the man who does the work, and then you give him the office, okay? There's nothing wrong with that. It's also the case that in every church I've ever been in, there are a group of people who seem to be in the in-group, and there's a group who think that they're in the out-group. Now, this expression is not mine, but it is common. Are you in the in-group, or are you going to be in the out-group? Well, this is, first of all, a political way of assessing the church. There is no in-group or out-group in the kingdom of God. But people feel it is psychologically valid. People feel in or out. And they feel that they are in the in-group or in the out-group based, really, I think, on only one factor. And that factor is attendance at meetings. Those who come regularly feel like they are part of what's going on. And those who come sporadically do not feel that they are part of the in-group noticed as those who volunteered. And that's credit. All right? Enough on diaconal, uh, the power to accept diaconal occasions. They're a little bit different. Perhaps in another age or time, we would be tougher about this. But in America, with everybody, uh, his own boss, it's a little bit hard, and we just leave it at that. We set these occasions up and hope that men will show. Before we talk about the appointment of liturgical occasions, I would like to lead into that by talking about informal power structures in the church. We've talked about the formal power structure, that is, the elders, and let's talk just briefly about informal power structures and get that out of the way before we talk about Worship, because when we start talking about appointing liturgical occasions, then we're going to lead into talking about the worship service and go over the new worship liturgy that we have and the like. We don't want to have to come back to this. So let me put in a parenthesis here about informal power structures in the church. Every community has an informal as well as a formal power structure. There's nothing wrong with that. It's in the nature of things. Some people come out and do a whole lot, and they kind of get recognized as leaders. In fact, they're the ones that the Bible says should be made leaders. You recognize the man who does the work, and then you give him the office, okay? There's nothing wrong with that. It's also the case that in every church I've ever been in, there are a group of people who seem to be in the in-group, and there's a group who think that they're in the out-group. Now, this expression is not mine, but it is common. 
Are you in the in group or are you going to be in the out group? Well, this is, first of all, a political way of assessing the church. There is no in group or out group in the kingdom of God. But people feel it is psychologically valid. People feel in or out. And they feel that they are in the in group or in the out group based really, I think, on only one factor. And that factor is attendance at meetings. Those who come regularly feel like they are a part of what's going on. And those who come sporadically do not feel that they are part of the in-group. And that causes resentments. But it is no one's fault but theirs because they do not come regularly. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. We'll talk briefly about attendance. I mentioned this last week, but here it comes up in my notes here, and I'd like to go over it again. I know I'm bringing coals to Newcastle, but we'll put it on tape, and uh, it uh, may be heard by people who should hear it. We all need to be reminded of this anyway. Hebrews 10, and let's start at verse 19. I'm going to comment on this as we go. Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. What's being said there is that since you have the privilege of going into the throne room of God, what Christian would ever, under any circumstances, not avail himself of that privilege? The single highest privilege that we have is the privilege to come into the throne room of God. It is the greatest of all privileges. There is no privilege higher than the privilege of coming into the Holy of Holies. In the Old Testament, nobody ever had that privilege. The high priest could go in once a year after an elaborate, bloody cleansing process. And it was so terrifying that they put a chain around his ankle so that if God killed him in there, they could drag his corpse out so his corpse wouldn't defile the holy place. Before he went in, he had to take a censer with incense burning because it was so shiny bright inside there that it would blind him. And so he filled the room up with smoke so that he could go in and not be blinded and so that the smoke would symbolize the prayers of Christ going before him so God wouldn't kill him. And then he had to sprinkle blood around there to protect himself. And he could only go in there once a year. Now you and I can go in there any time with no preparation except spiritual preparation. What a privilege that is. To despise that privilege is the greatest of all sins. It is to spit in the face of God. That means something real simple, that going to church is about the most important thing there is. I realize that that sounds real high churchy, but it's true. Attendance at public worship is the greatest of all privileges, no matter how meager or run down that public worship may be. All right? Let's read on here in Hebrews 10. Greatest of all privileges. Let us draw near, this is in verse 22, with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, first faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our body washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope, faith and hope, without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. That's why we have a confession of faith in our service. 
Uh, let's see. Verse 22, let us draw near having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. That's why we have a confession of sin, first of all, and an absolution. And then let us hold fast the confession of our hope, and we confess a twofold confession. One, we confess the history of redemption using the Apostles' Creed, and we confess the law of God. These are the two forms of reciting the covenant. And then it says, let us sti- consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Faith, hope, and love. How do you like that? Thought only Paul did that, huh? Well, maybe Paul wrote Hebrew. Maybe he didn't. Please. All right. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our assembling together as is the habit of some. Notice that. He starts pointing fingers. But encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I think that that's a reference to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., which they could see. There are no signs of the second coming. And uh, this was addressed to Hebrew Christians, and so... They had this to watch out for. But then notice how he follows this up. He talks about assembling, and then he says, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, and there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries, anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses, how much worse, how much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who is trampled underfoot the Son of God? and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has insulted the Spirit of grace. But that also follows faith, hope, and love, by the way. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now the whole argument there is in the Old Testament people had certain privileges, but you have so much more privileges. And if you forsake the assembling of yourselves together before the throne of God, that is... The sin spoken of here, so much worse. So, frequency of attendance in church is all important. And I can say no more than that, except that it's been my discovery about myself over the years that if I start getting lax about attending church, I begin to feel on the outs. I recall in seminary talking to students who would go to the church we were attending there in Jackson. they go two or three times and say, well... I don't think I want to go to this church anymore. They're not friendly. Well, I don't know what they wanted. What do you want? Some great mystical experience? Everybody to put their hands on you as you walk through the door? People don't do that. Well, I don't really feel part of that church community. Well, you've only gone there three weeks. If you want to become part of the church, you kind of try to go to everything. And you're not absent from things. Then you don't feel being on the outs. Now... When we start talking about the appointment of meetings, this gets into a problem because there are churches that have meetings every night of the week. People can't go to them all, and they do wind up with problems because of that. So it's important to be careful about when we set up church meetings. And that brings us then, as an introduction, I said, to a consideration of the power of church officers to establish liturgical occasions, the creation of meetings and times of worship. In 1 Corinthians 14, verse 40, it's usually pointed to as a kind of a proof text on this, although I don't think we need one. But in connection with the fact that we do have officers and overseers appointed in the church, then in 1 Corinthians 14, you have these rules about how worship is to be conducted. And obviously somebody makes the decisions. And in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 40, summing up everything he said, 
the Holy Spirit writes, let all things be done properly and in an orderly manner. Everything must be done properly, that is, according to the word, and in an orderly manner, that is, not chaotically. Not each person doing what he feels like doing, but uh, some type of organization. Now, I'm going to argue that there are primary meetings, primary kinds of times of worship, and there are secondary meetings, and that the church officers set these up. They appoint these occasions. Primary meetings are those meetings on the Lord's Day. That's the day God has set aside for worship. That's the day on which we have nothing else to do unless we have been given a providential hindrance, and basically we ought to kind of check with the elders on that if it's going to mean missing several weeks or missing week after week. But if we're not providentially hindered, we have nothing else to do but be present on the Lord's Day. And those are primary meetings. Those, we may say, are mandatory. Then there are secondary meetings like Bible conferences, Wednesday night services, festivals, whatever else may be set up uh, by the elders because they think that this would edify the congregation. These are secondary meetings at other times. And uh, we, they have to be regarded as voluntary, and we have to be careful that those meetings are not uh, times when the church is being moved in a certain direction. That is, if we have something new or important or significant to teach the congregation, it needs to be done on Sunday and not on Wednesday night, because some men have to work on Wednesday night or can't come. Okay, So it's not, it's not wise to try to communicate uh, things that are new to a particular congregation on such occasions. Rather, they have to be done on the Lord's Day. Now, let's talk about primary meetings, meetings on the Lord's Day. As I've said, people have basically no excuse for not attending uh, unless they have are providentially hindered or there are exceptional cases. Basically, as a rule, people need to be here. Sunday school, morning worship, evening worship, and fellowship occasions on the Lord's Day. What else is there to do? It's a day of rest, but there are lots of hours for rest. Uh, there are basically about four hours on an average per week for most people in the church. If you come here at 9.30 and you get out around 12.30 and it is about an hour, an hour and a half at night. That leaves lots of the day for rest. Uh, sleeping late or resting is no excuse. Uh, catechism class, where we have a catechism class for the teenage children, such as there are, and that, of course, is m extremely important. People who partially attend these or miss worship will tend to feel on the outs. I've made that point. Let's see. My notes are a bit repetitious. All right, let's talk about secondary meetings. I think that's where there's more discussion. Secondary meetings are at times other than the Lord's Day. Now, there is a view of the regulative principle which says we may only do what God commands in worship. The logic of that would mean that there can be no meetings on any day other than the Lord's Day. Wednesday night meetings would be out. Bible conferences would be out. But churches don't apply it that way. They draw a distinction between uh, special, meet, special worship on God's day with God's sacraments, special preaching, uh, which is required, and more secondary or voluntary kinds of meetings on other days. What the church has done historically is to study biblical patterns. What kind of are the kinds of patterns of worship we find in the Bible? And imitating those patterns, the office bearers set up meetings along those lines. We would have to say that meetings on the other days of the week are voluntary and that officers must be careful not to set up too many extra meetings. 
because this interferes with the cultural mandate. We are called to work six days, basically most of the time work six days. And if we set up too many extra meetings, that will interfere with that. And too many extra meetings can create an artificial in-group. That is, some people who just have lots of time, they can show up to all kinds of extra meetings and form a little in-group, and that's bad too. And so there are reasons, uh, and uh, the Directory of Worship at the, the Westminster Assembly calls attention to some of these problems, problems that can result of having too many extra meetings. However, we do have some extra meetings, and I believe that they are based on biblical patterns. Basically, there are three kinds of extra meetings that are set up in the church. There is Wednesday night worship, which is almost universal in our culture. There are festival days, and there are fast days. Some festival days are regular year after year, and some are for special occasions. Historically, the church has set these things up. They're voluntary. If you don't like them, you don't have to come. But the church has historically dealt with these kinds of things based on biblical patterns. Now, what is the biblical pattern that underlies Wednesday night worship or special meeting? Well, it's the pattern of third-day worship or third-day judgment. Now, I'm only going to introduce that this morning by asking you to turn to Numbers chapter 19. And there we'll see a pattern of sort of midweek occasion which has formed the basis for having a Wednesday night meeting. Numbers chapter 19 deals with the cleansing of the man who has become unclean by touching a corpse, how he is cleansed. And a pattern is, is set forth here, which we will see next week, next time, repeated through the Bible. We'll start in verse 11. The one who touches the corpse of any person shall be unclean for seven days. That one shall purify himself from uncleanness with the water on the third day and on the seventh day and then he shall be clean. But if he does not purify himself on the third day and on the seventh day, he shall not be clean. Remember, we're only looking at a pattern of how time is organized. We don't have these cleansing rituals because in baptism, which was done to us on the eighth day, uh, incorporates all of this. Anyone who touches a corpse, the body of a man who has died and does not purify himself, defiles the tabernacle of the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from Israel because the water for impurity was not sprinkled on him. He shall be unclean. His uncleanness is, is still on him. This is the law when a man dies in a tent. Everyone comes into the tent, and everyone who is in the tent shall be unclean for seven days. That is, ceremonially dead, because they come in contact with death. And every open vessel that has no covering tied down on it shall be unclean. Also, anyone who in an open field touches one who has been slain with a sword, who has died naturally, or a human bone, or a grave, shall be unclean for seven days. Contact with death makes you ceremonially dead. Then for the unclean person, they shall take some of the ashes of the burnt purification from sin, and flowing water shall be added to them in a vessel. And a clean person shall take hyssop, branch broken off the tree of life, and dip it in water, and sprinkle it on the tent and on all the furnishings, and on the persons who were there, and on the one who touched the bone, or the one slain, or the one dying naturally, or the grave, anybody ceremonially dead. Then the clean person shall sprinkle on the unclean, that is ceremonially dead, on the third day and on the seventh day. And on the seventh day he shall purify himself from uncleanness, and he shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water, and shall be clean by evening. Okay, you'll notice that there is kind of a first resurrection on the third day, and a second resurrection on the seventh day. 
And this two-resurrection pattern that you see in Numbers 19 is picked up in the New Testament where we find that Jesus was resurrected on the third day and entire history is resurrected on the seventh day, which we haven't come to yet. That there is a first resurrection of the inner man, which is in union with Christ on the third day. And on the last day of history, there's a second resurrection of the whole man, physical resurrection with a physical body. The book of Revelation, chapter 20, we read about the first resurrection, which is the resurrection of the inner man, this first cleansing, the resurrection of the third day. Now, next week, we will look a little bit more at this third day pattern and see how the church has picked that up to establish midweek services on what is basically can be seen as the third day of the week. But our time is up now, so let's stand and close in prayer. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.